it's not only just seeing where they're coming from in regards to like investment from their work side it's also where are they in their career and maybe this project that you're working on is a really big monumental part of something that's going to make get them promoted or something so i think if you understand that part of it as well you can build even more empathy The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. Today's show is a big one. You're going to hear the wholesome, educational, uh, all in all, just a great conversation that I've had with Maria Pentkovsky, who's a senior director of product design at Turo. We get to talk about the concept of player coach and how to become one, practical advice for how to approach your job search and interviews, how to build better relationships at work. It's just such a great conversation that I was a little sad when it ended. Let's just jump in. Here's Maria Pankowski. Maria, welcome to Design Meets Business. Your career spans more than 20 years and you've worked for some household names such as Evernote, Upwork and now Turo where you are a director of product design. You're mentoring designers through career coach. You're helping them find jobs, prepare for interviews, build confidence and grow as leaders. You are what I like to call a design powerhouse, but you didn't get here overnight, I assume. So let's talk a little bit about how you started out and what corners of the design world your journey took you on. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I've been quite a journey, I think, is a one way to put it. It's, it hasn't always been um, a f- kind of a flat road. But I think it in many ways connects to making you who you are today. So you're absolutely right. I'm uh, currently senior director of product design at Turo. And I've been there for three years. I also have the business careercoach.design where I mentor coach designers of all stages of their career on variety of goals that they're trying to meet and helping them really be the best that they can be and take advantage of the opportunities that often go untapped in the industry and really develop the type of talent that they already have and market them in ways that they can get ahead of the competition, especially now with the way that the economy has been in the last year has been exceptionally challenging. So that's what I do today. And prior to that, it's really been the road to this point. You know, I started out a long time ago. (laughs) Now it seems like back in the early 2000s as a web designer the term that is rarely used today, but at, you know, at the end of the day, we were interaction designers. And I think that term still holds behind product and UX design. So my entire career has been in the interaction design space. I'm very fortunate to have picked something to go to school and learn, and it translated well into an actual career path. I was fortunate to get into leadership really early in my career, like six months into my first job. I was promoted into a management position, partially by chance, partially because I displayed skills that qualified to get me there. And then it was on, on and the road has started and a lot of it has been spent in management and quite a bit of it was spent as an IC and a whole lot of it was spent as player coach. And then I taught and mentored really for the last 15 years in parallel to having a role in product design industry as a design leader, what I am today. Thank you. Player coach. Let's talk about that. Maybe not everyone knows what it is, and I think it's becoming more and more popular now. Give us a little brief intro of what is a player coach in the design world? Yeah, that's a great question. I, The way that I would describe it, it's a person who is a design expert, has experience to do the work themselves, and do great work, but also are a leader, whether they are a leader that has direct reports, 
or they're a leader just as an influencer, somebody who makes impact and influence. So it's a level of seniority and they contribute on both sides. They still do the work and practice the craft, but they also serve in some leadership capacity, whether it's again, managing direct reports or having a freelance team across the world or working with subcontractors or whatever it may be. I don't know about the States, but in Europe, that's becoming quite of a thing, the, the player coach. Is, is that the same over there in the States? And if so, why do you think that shift is happening now in these times? Why did it happen 10 years ago on a gr- large scale? Yeah, I think in many ways it relates to everybody being full stack, right? Everybody is expected to do everything from end to end of the process, just like designers are expected to do research and maybe even code a little bit. Leaders are expected to be a designer and then lead independently. But in the same time, it's a scale because once you find yourself in a place of doing everything, you can only do so much, right? I think this model is really popular in startups, some for budgeting reasons, some for just being super agile and scrappy but they tend to want somebody who is player coach in the capacity that I already talked about, but also that same person could be like a CPO and still really out there creating product requirements and working with designers or whatnot. So it's a scale where one can be everything, but then as the more you move towards one end or another, you're actually better off focusing on that particular piece because then you truly are embodying that. So for me, when I moved into the leadership, it was a very conscious decision to take that on as my core, something I'm fully committing to, because where I was at that stage and the responsibilities I was taking on, there was no room to be the player. I only had to be on the coaching side because that was the job that I was doing. But there are definitely roles in between. And I think the smaller the company, the more those roles are prevalent. I've been talking a lot with other guests in the past about this choice that designers have to make at some point in their career between staying as an individual contributor and growing up that ladder or moving on to the management track. And sometimes when you're there to some people, it just feels uh, it's a bit paralyzing because I I don't really know. And if most of your life you've been an IC, that's the life you know, you don't really know how it is to manage people. So what I've seen player coaches in the past or where I've seen this role become really interesting is it's a stepping stone when you have to make that choice. So the player coach will allow you to dip your toes a little bit into some of the management work or leadership work while still staying in your design tool every day. And that way you get to see if you enjoy management or not. And from there, you get to make a more of an informed decision as to which track do you want to continue on? Is that how you see it as well? You know, I have to agree with that. I actually currently am in a similar situation that we have some team shifts at my team on Toro and an opportunity presented itself where one IC who was at a lead level got the opportunity to be positioned as an interim manager until a more permanent leader was going to be backfilled. And in my conversation with him, introducing him to the opportunity, I really presented that as such because while it's not an easy task, it lets them do just what you said, which is test the water to make sure it's the right thing, the right role, and is he ready for that level of responsibility. So I think it's really great when companies present those types of opportunities for their teams. They don't happen often, but you also can take on a role that is specifically strategically that. As you said, transitioning from an IC into management, you may be more likely to get a role where it has the IC component and some of management versus going straight from an IC straight to management, whether it's in the same company or even moving through jobs. That must also be really hard to shift to make after a whole career of being an IC to suddenly move into management and just only do that. My experience is never as binary. It's a hybrid, if anything, most of the time. Even as a manager, you still get to to be in Figma every once in a while, even if it's not doing the work, at least you're critiquing or at least you're jamming or whatever it may be. But uh, there's something you said at the beginning that I'd like to pull a bit of a thread on. 
You said six months into your job, to your first job, you got promoted into a leadership position out of necessity. And that could have been or was because throughout those first six months, you've displayed some skills that made people above think, oh, Maria can do it in this role. And I'm wondering if someone at the senior level right now, let's say senior lead level as an individual contributor thinks, hmm, that player coach, that sounds like me. What sort of skills do you think they would have to display to be an attractive proposition for a role like that? I think there's two sides to it. I think there is a, like a foundational core leadership influencer, somebody making an impact the way that somebody carries themselves in their relationships and conversations with others. And then there's some practical skills of actually getting there and doing things that are just a part of management position. So how does somebody who hasn't had that experience and now has an opportunity to be a player coach or they decided that they want to be a player coach, how do they really embody and succeed on that side? I think they have to channel both of those, right? I think first they need to define to themselves what does leadership mean for them? I think there's a very clear difference between a leader and a manager and one should be the other. And a leader doesn't have to be a manager. A manager should probably be a leader to be a good manager. But I think they have to identify themselves. What does leadership mean to them and how do they want to be differentiated from being in a C role to now being a leader? I think that this is where coaching can actually come in really handy because it's tricky, especially if you are on the same team, right? How do you get there? How do you all of a sudden grow up and take on this next step? So the skills that you need to succeed is the confidence. And confidence comes from knowing your leadership style. And sometimes it just takes time to define that. And then it's just the ability to do the things that design leaders do. It's building roadmaps. It's understanding more than just what one team is doing. It's working with other leaders. It's thinking about business strategy. It's taking on a new set of responsibilities. So how do you elevate yourself a little bit from being on the front lines? Take on some of those responsibilities that include impacting other teams, people, and processes and play the both sides, right? So that ultimately you can move fully into the leadership if that is the right path after this experience. You've mentioned leader, leadership. You've mentioned that a few times already. And I want to pull a quote that um, you wrote in a post on LinkedIn and perhaps unpack that a little bit. You said, be the leader who inspires and motivates others to follow them instead of someone who pushes people out of the way to get ahead. I think that sounds like an ideal leader, someone who shows you the direction, encourages you, helps you on the way. Do you have any examples of someone in your team, whether now or in the past, who has displayed some of this leadership capability or, or, or yeah, leadership capacities, capabilities of just inspiring others? How do you inspire as a designer, perhaps as an individual contributor? How do you inspire others? I'm a big believer in setting a North Star vision. I think there is a lot of love and ideas and thinking that gets put into a development of a pretty far to reach kind of concept, but the idea of what it could be if everybody did their part. And when you develop such vision, and obviously it takes time in your career to get to a level where you, you can think that far. And I think that's really the big difference I feel between an IC over junior level to ICs of senior level, because then they start thinking deeper, further down. They understand the product and where the long-term product strategy is to start developing North Star visions that are consistent and aligned and have more energy to actually come to life. So you develop a North Star vision in a way that inspires others because they feel like I could play this role and together collectively we'll get there because we have the right leadership. It's aligned with company strategy. We are going somewhere where it's going to be a long, hard road, but we can see a way to get there. And when you get into that synergy, you get the team that's really bought in. They're invested, sometimes through equity in the company, and everybody works together, and then magic happens. 
right? So I do think it's about not only creating the vision of the dream, but providing the team a clear plan on how to get there. And does that involve your cross-functional partners as well? So as a designer, I oftentimes find that it's mostly designers that can inspire the other two cross-functional partners. Engineers, at least in my experience, rarely do it. PMs, not so often. I think oftentimes is is design that can draw a vision or create that North Star that you were talking about and lay that out in front of the, the product team and say, here's how we could look like. Here's what we could be delivering if we put our heads together. Is that what you mean when you say to put, put a create a North Star and inspire people around? You should absolutely include your cross-functional partners into the process. Maybe not throughout the whole process if you want the design to own it, but it could be from the very beginning. At the end of the day, you want to have alignment that we are going in the right direction. Because in many ways, the North Star vision at a design level is taking something that was already demonstrated at the company strategic level and given more framing, more ideas of how it can be incorporated in the real world, something that makes it more tangible. I think working with cross-functional teams through the process of developing that idea into something conceptual that can be actually reviewed as an actual product idea, product feature, or something that will be ultimately uh, built in iterative phases, you should absolutely work with your engineering and your product partners very closely. In my experience, I've definitely worked with engineers that didn't really stay involved. I would say that it's changed quite a lot since Figma became the tool of choice. I think it enabled designers and engineers to talk the same language and Maybe I also design less, so I'm exposed less to this world. I stopped designing, it was still Sketch, so it was still pre-Figma. But I don't. I see a lot more synergy and partnerships between designers and engineers. And I see our engineers at, at Toro, at least, they're being incredibly creative. And they come to workshops and they suggest their ideas. They're part of the roadmap planning. It's a real collective process where creativity definitely shines. So I think many times... Those teams just need to be given the opportunity to be creative and to share their ideas and they would be all over it. As a matter of fact, I've met many engineers who were like musicians and artists in other ways. So they're, you know, they, they hide behind the code, but they can provide a lot of value into product development early in the process. I think a lot of people don't really understand that engineers are actually highly creative as well. They just display their creativity in a different manner than we do as designers. And this allows me to segue into something that I think it's interesting to talk about because you mentioned engineers who are good product thinkers as well. Several examples that I can think of in my career where I've had engineers say, I don't think this is good experience. I don't think this is good design. So the engineers at some point start pushing back on the design work. And I've been thinking a lot about why is this happening in some teams and not in others. And the only answer that I could come up with, and I'm wondering if you can sense check this and let me know what you think, is that if you as a designer are able to form strong relationships with your partners and bring them along the journey, the same you were talking about earlier with setting that vision, they are also more likely to let their creativity come out because they understand where and why we together are heading towards. What do you think about that? Is that accurate in any way? That's. I think that's exactly what I was trying to communicate earlier is that if the vision is everybody is excited about it and everybody sees that there is a way to get there and they're aligned on the pathway to get there, then you feel more invested in its final outcome. So you, rather than pushing back, you're going to work together collaboratively to figure out a compromise that can get us there. You're absolutely right, because the earlier they're involved, the more bought into the vision they are. And if it's about being involved early, and if it's about building relationships with these cross-functional partners, how do you as a designer go about doing that on a daily basis? Perhaps you're starting in a new team, and you want to build relationships with the people you're working with. How do you go about doing that? I think it's about just being human and being yourself and letting be a little vulnerable and letting your people who you work with see that we are much more likely to relate to somebody who we feel confident we're seeing who the true self 
is in front of them. I, that's been a really great entryway into just relationships with people, you know, cracking a joke here and there, I think is also not a bad thing, but I, and that's, you just need to get your kind of foot in the door with somebody to start building a relationship. Coffee chats are great. And you start finding things in common between you both. And I love starting every meeting, like today, we're a day before Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And I had a few meetings earlier and everyone says, what's your Thanksgiving plan? What are you doing? Are you cooking turkey? Stuff like that. Having that connection that's outside of work, I think makes work relationships a lot stronger. And then you want to have, pr prove yourself a reliable, responsible partner. Obviously, don't let anybody down. As a matter of fact, do the opposite. Be there for them, whether they are asking for help or not. Contribute with your thought leadership. Make sure that you guys are both, whether it's you and your product manager, you and your engineers, that everybody's doing their part. If one ever feels like they're not, they should ask for feedback. As a matter of fact, you should ask for feedback all the time just to always have yourself in check because you want to be the right partner to your cross-functional partners, right? And I think that word partnership, we know how to interpret it in our data. We know what it's like. We have life partners. We have work partners. It's a bond and you need to do your part and you need to invest in that relationship. And then ultimately it becomes founded on a trust and respect and trust for each other's expertise and respect for each other and understanding where each person you're trying to have this partnership with is and like in their life and their career, as much as you can about them to demonstrate empathy and humanity to, to show that you, you not only care about them in a work context, you actually care about them as a human being. I think if we draw some inspiration from how we treat our personal relationships, if you build a relationship with someone, one of the things that you are very inclined to know is what they care about, is what they like doing, what they don't like doing, what are the, all the sort of personal de details about them. And I think we forget that work relationships are the same. They're also relationships and we forget to ask each other or try to understand what the other person needs. One of my favorite things to do when I join a new team is to book a coffee chat with everyone in the team and then just ask questions about them. What do you care about? What did the person in my role before me did not do so well? Where do you think we could do better? And just, it's just about them. If they ask, sure, I'll say a few things about me, but it's mostly about them. And what I have found is that when you do that versus when you don't do that, you are already starting from a better place because they start seeing you not as this new person coming in with all of these solutions and all of this creativity and whatever it may be. You're coming in and you're just a human and you care about them. And I think for me, that is so key. And we often forget that just as we as designers have things that we care about, the experience, we care about consistency, we care about all of these things, so do our cross-functional partners. They also have the things that they care about. And unless we understand what those are, I think it's really hard to build trust and a, a good relationship with them. Yeah, I would also say that it's not only just seeing where they're coming from in regards to like investment from their work side. It's also where are they in their career? And maybe this project that you're working on is a really big monumental part of something that's going to make get them promoted or something. So I think if you understand that part of it as well, you can build even more empathy and synergy between the different people in the relationship. Yeah. You also mentioned feedback earlier, which obviously is key as part of this, whether it's receiving it or giving it. Let's unpack feedback a little bit. If you are in a team and maybe something is not going so well, maybe you are not having this great relationship with a PM or an engineer, what role can feedback play into that? We need to be open to feedback. Feedback is not a bad thing, despite of what some people may think and be scared of it. But feedback is great. It needs to be a two-way street. Uh, it needs to be given. It needs to be received. Peers up, down, all of that. Like feedback just needs to be in uh, a comfort area and feedback needs to be the source of not improving what's not working. I don't like when feedback is framed in that way. I like when free feedback is framed as growth opportunities. And if, obviously for managers to their direct reports, that's how it's framed in many ways. But with peers, I think everybody needs to take on this leadership component that we talked about earlier, that as you grow in your career, you pick up and you start influencing and influencing people, even in an IC capacity, even in a peer capacity, 
it's very valuable. You can start practicing your leadership uh, skills there. So there needs to be a comfort level of just having a direct conversation with a person and be like, you know, I want to give you some feedback and just be very direct, be very empathetic and provide ways of how that can be perhaps addressed. If you don't feel comfortable giving your peer feedback, then you should speak to their manager and their manager should deliver that feedback to them. But it's the feedback, particularly constructive feedback, but really all feedback, even complimentary feedback, it should not be held back because feedback is really for somebody to hear it and to act on it, right? Whether they should continue doing something that they're already doing well, or they should just feel good about doing something that people are having positive comments about, or it's a really an area of opportunity for growth. Because at the end of the day, some of those harsh feedback that we've gotten in our career has helped us to grow and to be who we are today. I know you wrote uh, another post. I'm going to reference a lot of posts <laughs> that uh, you, you, you wrote quite a bit. And uh, you say feedback should be clear, actionable, thought-provoking, given with good intent and helpful. This is a great list. And I think four of these are quite clear. But I'm wondering about thought-provoking. When I read that, I thought, whoa, that, that, that post in itself is thought-provoking. <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? Feedback needs to be thought-provoking. Because... Feedback shouldn't be just something that tells you, spells it out for you. Sometimes it can be like, you should start doing this. Sure. But when you're providing feedback, particularly in the context of a design flow, user experience, whatever it may be, you want to have the designer who is receiving that feedback to think it through and make their own decision of how to go about solving a particular problem. I used to teach and I taught for 10 years, graduate and undergraduate students. A lot of times I would have students come to me after class, after the lecture, bring their laptop, put it in front of me with their screens that they're designing. You know, they say, Maria, you gave me this feedback earlier that this wasn't working. What should I do? And I would always tell them, my job is to tell you what's not working and why I think it's not working. It is your job to figure out what you want to do with that information and how do you want to address it so that next time I see it, things are indeed working based on the merit that I showed earlier. Yeah. Okay, cool. And if you, let's say you are comfortable giving feedback and you have some feedback to give, but you just don't know how, where can you learn? How do you learn? It's, it's also an art to give feedback. If you would mentor someone today and you'd say, and they'd say to you, Maria, I have all this feedback to give. I just don't know how. What's the best way of doing it? I don't want to sound harsh. I don't want to sound disrespectful. I don't want to sound irrational. Where can I learn to give better feedback? Well, I think you can learn in many different ways. I don't think there's like a class of feedback, but perhaps there is. There's probably a class on everything nowadays. Again, you can work with a coach. It doesn't have to be a coach that you hire. It could be just a mentor or somebody who is great at giving feedback or perhaps just in more senior role and is comfortable with that among many other things. You need to do it in a way that is respectful to the other person. You're not trying to give feedback to be mean. Your feedback comes with good intent. You want that person to get better, to grow, and you're giving the feedback with that intent. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes when we work with other teams and we're like, I got to give them feedback because what they're doing is just not compatible with what we're doing. It's not good or bad, or it's going to help them grow. Sometimes it's more tactical. But when somebody is giving feedback, just critiquing designs, maybe earlier concepts, it needs to have merit. So if there is a data point that's backing up the feedback, there is an industry standard, and there should always be something that roots the feedback in actuality that makes it justifiable. And in that case, being direct, making sure that the feedback is very clear, given with good intent, and is backed up by some data or some point of reference, and everything is communicated in a way of, again, you're doing this wrong, fix it. Not that way. It's more of, we've had some friction, blah, blah, blah. I think there's a great opportunity for us to work better together if ABC, that kind of a format. When it comes to feedback on design work, something that I've always struggled with is feedback based on opinions. It's really hard to deal with because it, you can't go to someone and say, no, your opinion is wrong. That's just, an opinion is just that. It's just an opinion. So... When you present some piece of work and someone says, I don't like it because I wouldn't press that button or 
I think there's way too much text on this. You can't just tell the person you're wrong. <laughs> How do you deal with that? I don't think you need to tell them that they're wrong. I think you'd be like, can you show me a point of reference where you've seen it done that way where it works really well? Or do you have any research that backs up your idea? I think when you're not getting the justification for the feedback and you're not sure what this really is driving that feedback, I think you should feel empowered to ask clarifying questions if the feedback is targeted at you because you want to not only understand the recommendation, you actually want to understand what is triggering it. So we've already gotten into a, a bit of coaching here. Let's move on to coaching and talk about you're, you're, you're coaching designers now, you're, you're coaching design leaders as well. What got you into doing that and what motivates you to do it in the first place? Yeah, so like I mentioned, I have been in the coaching, mentoring, teaching space for almost 15 years, or maybe it already has been 15 years, kind of stopped counting after a while. I taught for 10 years in two, two different schools, art schools, for graduate and undergraduate students, always focused on the career development, portfolio development space. I wrote a curriculum for a portfolio development course. It was a great journey, and through that process, I have built a lot of relationships with students who were there. A lot of them were international students, really developing um, understanding of different cultures through the process and how to speak design to students of different levels. And then during COVID, the classroom became digital and virtual and the curriculum, the way that it was set up in my current classes I was teaching at that time was really not designed for that. So it was really challenging to wrap up a semester there. But once I got to that summer of 2020, I decided to make a very conscious decision to go into a consulting space. I always found myself more valuable when I could understand a student directly and provide them personalized recommendations. And I always felt that in a classroom setting, some students got, got shortened because the style or the approach or even the level of a curriculum is just not, it just can't be one fits all. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. So I decided to go into a one-on-one -on -one consulting space and I did that for a couple of years, as some people refer to it as a side hustle, I always thought that word didn't do it justice because we were helping people grow and evolve in their careers. And it certainly deserved a better name than a side hustle. And I formed careercoach.design, same business name and URL, which great, greatly helps with my SEO, formed that January of 2023. So we're approaching our one year anniversary we have since then been working with nearly 50 clients who've joined our Slack community and they either got into membership or they got into package or they just got a session here and there and they became a members of this community. It's been a tough economic year and despite all that, we saw results of growth and progress, people becoming more confident, people getting jobs. Recently, one of the clients we've been working with has gotten a really great position at Netflix, for example. So working with principal level designers, design leaders, a lot of folks who've recently got into that player coach stuff that we were talking about earlier, or some management, and they're like, I'm a manager, how do I become a leader? How do I discover that voice? So yeah, that's the company. It's growing now into an agency model, and we'll be adding new coaches to the platform in the new year. So very excited about expanding the different coaching approaches, different focuses in some areas. Coaches will bring in their expertise in different verticals perhaps, and just in general growing our community and being able to help as many designers and design leaders as we can. That's awesome. What would you say are the most common issues that people come to you with today? Find a job. This year has been hard. And there's been a lot of layoffs and I've seen an incredible amount of talented, hardworking people who were either about to get laid off or recently got laid off or were just in fear of being laid off. And there have been people who's been looking for work for a year, sometimes longer than a year. It, it's, that's been the number one reason I would say in the last year, but I think it's very much 
driven by the economy and what's going on. I will say that if I go back a year prior to that, where senior designer roles were going like hotcakes, people were hiring everywhere during COVID, post-COVID era, that year, 2022, was all about signing offers. Help me negotiate an offer. Help me get through that final round of interviews or help me through the interview process where this year was more like, help me just get a job my, from my portfolio to just getting somebody to call me back because the odds are no longer in designers' favor. So much talent out there. Their jobs are starting to grow. I see, I see more jobs lately, which is an interesting anomaly this year. I feel like usually... At the end of the year, the job market kind of slows down. But this time around, there's definitely jobs out there. And we've placed clients just in the last few months, which a handful of clients, which is really great. But it's been a grueling, a grueling path to get there. So we hope for a new theme next year, a better one. And we hope to help more leaders, more people to find their leadership voice at any level of their career. And those who are interested in design leadership to get work with their coach on really defining their leadership style and getting those leadership skills to be the leaders of tomorrow because it's very important responsibility. Um, and I think it matters not only for their teams, but really what this industry is going to be moving forward. So I also hope that next year you're going to help more designers negotiate offers than get someone to call them. For now, though, when someone comes to you and says, nobody's calling me, I am just not doing well in my job search. How do you take that person and then help him or her get further on that path to actually getting a job or at least starting to interview? Absolutely. You have to market yourself and you really have to position yourself as the top in your level. Portfolio is a big deal. The way that your portfolio website and slide deck are built, it really matters. It needs to tell a great story. It needs to provide enough depth. It needs to be beautifully designed. I frankly think that lacks lately, which is unfortunate having coming from a graphic design background. I remember how our instructors in the university used to cringe at uh, some of the designs and how it really instilled in me the quality of design presentation and how it matters. And sometimes uh, I see more like really great projects, but not a greatly designed presentation. So I think that absolutely matters. And then, you know, like, do you know your stuff? Can you present your stuff? Obviously to get to present, you got to get through the first round, right? Your portfolio needs to be noticed. So that's why your website is so important. You need to have projects in your website that are relevant. So there is this concept of relatability. You need to position yourself as the solution to the problem, the company who is hiring having, which is why they're hiring. What makes you better fit than everybody else? How do you start beating the odds, right? How do you get that to be that better match for what the requirements are? You want to demonstrate experience in your portfolio, like that you've done this type of work. You've shipped work. Maybe the work is relatable to the interviewers based on the thematics. Perhaps it's a food delivery company and you've worked at Uber or another food delivery company and they find this match. Perhaps you worked in the pace of a growth team and they're hiring on a growth team. That makes you a match. Maybe you worked at an e-commerce and there is marketplace e-commerce space that you're kind of hiring there. You want to demonstrate that relatability. You want to make sure your website is not overstuffed with text because people don't read. It needs to be a balance of visuals, quality visuals, like data visualizations of what you're trying to say. Don't put stock photography or filler type of images, make sure that you have graphics, but the graphics are paired with the content that they're demonstrating. Also love animated prototypes of the flows versus mini screens. Give the user an experience when they're exploring your case studies so that they feel like they understand the concept, the problem and your ability to solve it, even if they didn't read the whole thing, but they're able to go through it, to scroll through it actually enjoy that experience because you're building an experience just like anything else. Your portfolio is a product and you should build it as such, deeply considering your audience and then comprehensiveness. Like, are they able to comprehend and 
by the time they get through your case study, is it clear that your experience matches relatable to what they're looking for? So there's something that you mentioned there. Uh, you went past it pretty fast, but I want to bring it back because I think it's important. You said your portfolio needs to be in great shape, but your slide decks need to be shaped as well. Is that meant to be understood as portfolio has one role, which is the role of getting you the interview? And the slide deck is what you then present in the interview. And that role, the role of that slide deck is to get you the job. So what you have online in your portfolio, that's not necessarily what you're going to present in an interview. Even if it's the same project, you might give more context or you might talk about something that you weren't able to talk about because there's an NDA there in your portfolio. Is that what you meant? Yes, in some ways. I wrote this other post on LinkedIn. You've probably seen that one as well, but I compared... Exactly that website and and slide decks and what is it the different ways of looking at it and I think at the end I just did this statement where I said if you the analogy would be if your slide deck is a movie then your website case study is a trailer to that movie so again you're dealing with a different audience a website is being viewed by a recruiter or a hiring manager in their space in their office, maybe during their lunch hour, you have to consider all those environmental things, right? The, you are not there to keep their attention. You're not there to provide a voiceover how you would be when you're presenting your slide deck. You need to really understand your environments and your audience and design those to get them. I always say that for a slide deck, if you're going to be presenting your slide deck, optimize as if your interview is at 4 p.m. on a Friday. And I've had a lot of those interviews. Let me tell you, when I was interviewing somebody and you just, I cannot wait for my weekend to come here. And when somebody surprises you with a really great presentation, you're bound to remember it. I love that analogy of the portfolio is the trailer and the slide deck is your movie. And I think this goes back to something that's been discussed when it comes to portfolio in the industry for quite a while, but perhaps it doesn't land that often, which is your portfolio is nothing else other than a design project. And when you do any sort of design project, what are the first things you're starting with? Who's going to be using this? Where? In which context? What are the things I need to know? What are the problems they have that this product can solve? And the portfolio is exactly the same. It's a hiring manager, perhaps a recruiter. They want to know really quickly if you cover those three, five, ten things that they're looking for, they want to be able to contact you and perhaps get inspired a little bit as well if that's what they're looking for. So thanks for Putting that out there, I will definitely use that analogy myself in the future because it is so good. When it comes to your portfolio, let's say you've done this work. It looks great now. It's perfect for this audience. How do you then apply for a job? And I'm not, I don't mean that in a, how does one apply for a job? But I mean that in a, can you do something else other than just applying like everyone else applies to stand out a little bit more than everyone else? Yeah, not only can you, I think you should. Because again, you're trying to stand out from the masses. You want to be in, in the top, right? So how do you do it? An obvious way, which I, I think doesn't have a high uh, odds of success, unfortunately, is to reach out directly to the recruiter. Obviously, if you're using LinkedIn Premium, I think you, there is like a way to directly email the recruiter. Unfortunately, because again, of the volume of people who've been looking for work in the last year, there has been a lot of that and it becomes spammy. You can create that response in a way that makes it stand out from other pings to that recruiter. Uh, usually when that first statement is not, hi, my name is so-and-so, here's my portfolio, but saying something catchy that relates to the company, for example, or something like that. I would also say uh, referrals, referrals, and referrals. This year seem to have been much greater odds to get a job through a referral than through cold apply. For me personally, in my career overall, I actually only got all my roles through cold apply. I'm not sure if I'm in the common group here or not, but definitely in the, in the last year, from what I hear from all of my clients, is that most of the interviews come from referrals just because, again, of the odds. And then finally, it's being a contributor to the community in social media. LinkedIn is a great platform. I know you and I met in, on LinkedIn in that sense. I've been using LinkedIn platform ever since... I established career coach design business this year and growing my followers list. Um, I believe I'm close to 8,000. We'll get there definitely uh, this year. So grew my network quite a bit. 
And some of it is you grow your network by directly following people or connecting with people. And a lot of it is by the content that you share. Sometimes it's your thought leadership and the posts that you write. It's the articles that you share. A lot of us have been sharing jobs this year. We share jobs a lot on our business page on LinkedIn. And you build a following and a reputation and a network. And the more quality people are in your network, the more opportunities you're going to be exposed to, the higher the odds you can get that referral. I think a lot of the clients that I've worked with this year have found me through LinkedIn. And for many of them, it has greatly impacted their career. And perhaps they wouldn't have been exposed to me or what I do if I was not uh, doing some of that content creation. So I think in the job search is just as important. And if I may shamelessly plug myself in there, <laughs> a few uh, episodes ago, we had uh, Tom Scott on the show, who is uh, one of probably the most well-known design recruiter in the UK. He's been creating a lot of content for a lot of years. And what we were discussing there is a lot of this is about making people aware that you exist. Because there are so many people out there that it's much easier to cut through the noise if people know your name, if people, if you interact with them. I think you said this as well, interacting with people on LinkedIn, answering, responding to their posts, commenting. Even if necessarily you're not creating anything yourself, just being there part of the community, I think even that is valuable. If you look, look, not everyone wants to create, not everyone can create, not everyone has the time, not everyone has an interest in it. So, and that's completely fine. But at least figuring out how you can be part of the community in other ways is something that I think you can do. And another thing that I may add, and I've been on both sides of this, I've been on the receiving end and on the other end, is whenever you're looking for a specific job in a specific company, it really doesn't hurt to contact someone in a similar role. So it might be, maybe it's not a hiring manager, but perhaps you're looking for a job at booking.com and you're just looking for a designer at booking.com, sending them a LinkedIn message and saying, hey, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. I'm super interested in this job. Would you be okay that I send you a couple of questions? In most cases, they'll say, yeah, of course. I, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I help you out? And you're not really asking for anything other than them telling you how it is to work there. So you're not making a crazy ask. But what happens sometimes is that you end up having a conversation with that person. That person offers to refer you because there is a benefit for someone who refers a lot of companies. If you refer someone successfully, you also get something as an employee. You get a fee there. So there is a benefit on both sides. So I'd say if you're not comfortable necessarily creating uh, content out there, definitely get involved somehow in the community and get in touch with people from those specific companies because more often than not, they're really willing to help. People in the design community are super willing to help. Yeah, I will also add that in 2021, when I was hiring quite a bit myself and the competition was fierce and that was when there were a lot of jobs and a lot of people were getting jobs. A lot of people want to work at Toro, so we always get a lot of applications and I would sometimes go through them and the monotony of like in your ATS, searching through everything. I will say that the people who did reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, what worked well, I think, for them from the conversion point for them is that obviously we were already connected and I knew them from somewhere. Obviously, if they were not, we were not connected, if their message to me contained the link to their portfolio, in a very top sentence, at least it's easy for me to click that link and then the portfolio pops up. And usually for me, I can tell really quickly whether this person is qualified for the role that I'm looking for as a hiring manager. Let's take it a step further. We're now in the interview process. I'm in front of someone who's hiring and you wrote another post that I loved and that will definitely be the show notes for people to read it fully, but let's just surface level it. There are a few questions there that you've been trying to demystify with this article, common interview questions that designers are asked oftentimes. And I'd like to walk through a couple of them, probably not all, but just a few of them, and then hear what would you hope that someone in front of you who you asked this question would answer. So one that every designer has been asked in any interview that they've ever had is, what is your design process? What's your expectation there as a hiring manager that they answer with? I'm going to say what I hope that they don't say. <laughs> and I hope I don't get a walkthrough through all of the points of the double diamond process. I think at the end of the day, the double diamond at the core of your process is fine. But I think for me, what really demonstrates to me a designer who has gone through the end-to-end -end product design process versus a designer who only heard about it in bootcamp 
is that every process is a little bit different. But if it starts with some point of origin and you're able to justify it, and then you can walk through your way of exploring the problem space and diverging, and then ultimately converging on a problem statement or a theme to explore within and problems to solve within, then you can diverge again in the different ways of solving a particular problem. And then you talk about the involvement of research and other steps in that filtration process down to diverging into the final design. So if you think about it, these points of diverge, converge, diverge, converge, it is a double diamond, but you are not using the lingo. You are talking about your process as to how it went, because sometimes the first diamond is a lot larger than the second diamond. And it's really important to demonstrate your own experience going through the design process. There is no prescribed process for you to retell. There's not a specific answer that your interviewer is looking for. And if you're not going to say the right thing, you're going to fail. Actually, if you say the same thing that everybody else says, you probably are not saying the right thing. So you need to talk about the process as it has gone for you and perhaps even talk about the areas that you want to improve moving forward as you're continuing to grow in your role. If you would go in and you'd say, I could tell you what the typical, what the ideal process is, but instead of that, let me just walk you through the process that I've gone through for this specific project and then walk them through an actual project so that they can extract the process from them. Is that a better approach than just talking theoretically about a process that might or might not have happened at some point? I think it depends on the context of the interview. If you're having a quick recruiter call and they're, tell, they're asking you, like, tell me about your design process, you shouldn't be able to have a quick verbatim to give them to answer that question in a way that doesn't make you sound like you've read that answer in a book somewhere, that, that is truly your answer. I think if you're talking to a, a hiring manager and you say that, hey, great question, I actually have a case study here that I can share my screen and walk you through to really show you what my process was. Do you mind? Like you can be more upfront about that, right? And that can give you an opportunity to not only answer that question, not only walk them through your process, but at the same time, tease them with this great design that you've done and give them like this feeling of, oh, I want to learn more. Let me invite them to a portfolio case study presentation because I really want to see this whole project. You got to take advantage of all of these opportunities to push yourself forward to get exposure. Because again, that's how you beat the odds. I love that. That's uh, again, going back to the point we made earlier about knowing your audience at every point in time. Although the question is the same, the audience is different in these two different interviews. So obviously the answer can't be the same. So uh, a very good uh, tactical tip there. So let's do one more and then we'll let listeners uh, go to the article, the show notes and, and read the rest. So let's do what makes a, a relationship with a PM successful. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about that earlier as well, right? It's that partnership. It's the partnership that really respects each other's area of expertise. And the goal that we are heading towards is clearer. And we are getting there together. We're figuring out how to be that supportive partner to each other to collectively come to a victorious outcome. I've seen a lot of PM designer relationships in my career, those that are unsuccessful is when PM just delegates to design and designer just does what they're told. The relationships that I've seen successful, the partnerships that I've seen successful between designer and product manager is when they're problem solving together. Not one person is right and the other one is wrong. It's always uh, a balance and a dialogue. And you bring in engineers into that as well, frankly, right? Because it really needs to be product design and engineering collaboration back to our point earlier of getting engineers involved early. So yeah, so it's, it's respect for each other. It's respect for each other's expertise, alignment, and working towards a common goal and taking the falls together and celebrating together. So it's a true teamwork. I'm just trying to figure out what else I should ask you because there are a million things that I want to ask and there's only so much time we have. I'm just going to ask you about one more thing, the last topic that I want to cover before we have to end. I know you're also a master negotiator and it's something that we have in 
almost three full seasons of this podcast never discussed negotiating your salary. Any tips there for someone who perhaps is in front of someone they're negotiating with right now and finds themselves not knowing what to do or perhaps knowing what to do, but just wanting an extra tip to get more out of it? Definitely don't be intimidated. Every offer is negotiable. And if your fear is, oh, if I negotiate, they will rescind their offer, you probably don't want to work for that company. So I would say don't be paralyzed with fear that if you negotiate, you are not going to get the role. And if again, if you don't get the role, it's probably a blessing in disguise. The worst that can happen, and frankly, it has happened last year because of the economy, is that you get first and final. And usually companies are upfront with it or they say that right as you try to negotiate the first round. Offers really rarely get rescinded. More often than not, offers get rescinded is not because the candidate negotiated, but because the company decided to cut the role. So definitely negotiate. But I will also say that if you are not comfortable negotiating, and so many people aren't, as a matter of fact, I am better salary and offer negotiator than I am a Facebook marketplace negotiator because once I got swindled by an old lady over a table lamp, learned a lot of my skills how to negotiate uh, there. But I would say get somebody to help you. Get somebody who's either done it. I have plenty of friends who have six, seven years of experience in the industry and they've negotiated for themselves a couple of times and they feel confident. It's not that hard to provide somebody some guidance. Or hire a coach. Hire a professional compensation a negotiation coach. There are folks who do just that. There are coaches who focus exclusively on that. There are coaches like me who bring that as part of their product offering because we do provide uh, full service end-to-end kind of career support. If usually if you hire somebody, the fees are a portion of what the delta is between what they maybe would have never gotten in the first place and what the original offer is. And in many ways, it pays for itself. So I would say definitely negotiate. And if you feel uncomfortable, get somebody to help you. Thank you for that. At the end of each episode, I ask every guest two questions. First one is, what is one action that you think led to your success that in a way or another perhaps separated you from some of your peers? I would say it's my work ethic. I never quit. I definitely have felt moments of discouragement and despair, particularly while searching for a job, and I've searched for work multiple times throughout my career, even when I felt at my lowest, I got up, I dusted myself off, and I kept going. Even after the most brutal rejection or a very honest feedback at your performance review or whatever it may be, I always took it, processed it, and learned from it and moved on. So I would say it's the resilience, courage, and determination. Big words. For sure, yeah. I uh, gave a talk about resilience a few months ago outside of the design context, so uh, certainly something that I believe in as well. The other one is, what are we not talking about enough when it comes to design? The people. I think when we talk about design, oftentimes we think about the artifact. But what we really should think about is that who the design is for and who creates the design. And why is the design that mechanism of connecting humans? I'm a big believer in humanity, and I do believe that most humans are good, despite of the crazy world that we live in. And I think if everybody made it a point to reach out and to really understand who the users of the product really are and how can we really create the type of work that makes somebody's small, tiny little world a little bit better, that collectively makes the world as a whole a little better. Design has the power to do that. And we are here holding it literally in our hands. I always say that if every single one of us is a pixel in the universe, I want to shine just a little bit brighter so some of that light rubs off on the pixels that are around me. Nice. Thank you for that. What a note to end on. That's a a very beautiful way of putting it. So thank you for that. Maria, if someone wants to get in touch with you, find out what you're up to, perhaps get coaching from you, where would they have to go to find you? 
So my website is a careercoach.design. You can come to my website if you are a new client that we haven't worked before. You qualify for a free 30-minute session to get us going to see if our styles are compatible. Um, so please come and register. It's a channel if you're really interested in coaching. I wouldn't do it just to kind of, hey, I want to meet Maria. I would say that if you are interested in coaching, definitely do that. So that's one way to get in touch with me and get on a video call with me. You can also email me, maria at careercoach.design. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Please do follow me and careercoach.design business page. We post, repost great jobs every day from that we find in our network. And it's going to continue adding more valuable content there, whether it's sharing or some of the thought leadership from myself and more coaches that we're adding to the platform. But I think, yeah, those are great ways to get in touch with me. Perfect. Maria, thank you. This has been such a good episode and I hope you've enjoyed being here as much as I've enjoyed just listening to your stories and everything you've shared with us today. So thank you again and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you've listened this far, thank you. I appreciate you and I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.